Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to On This Walk, the show that helps men rediscover their unique path to true freedom. My name is Luke Iorio. I have spent the last two decades in the human potential industry helping, teaching, coaching thousands of people to create a more fulfilling, deeply aligned life. It's my mission to reawaken and reconnect men to the joy, purpose, and peace that will help you become who you aspire to be for yourself, your loved ones, and those you lead. All right, let's get into today's walk because we're going to go on a journey of discovery and a different, even evolutionary, not revolutionary, although it may seem like that in today's time, an evolutionary perspective and call for reconnection with nature's deep partnership. Drawing from personal experiences, including his father's breakdown and the birth of his first son, my guest has spent a career focusing on and tackling the pressing issue of men's health and total well-being. Did you know that men as a whole and across pretty much all cultures tend to die younger and have higher rates of disease compared to women? It's a staggering statistic that my guest Jed Diamond, the founder of Men Alive, aims to address through his recent project, The Moonshot for Mankind, uniting individuals and organizations committed to improving men's health. And let me say total health, because this conversation isn't just about men's or male physical well-being. It delves into the concept of the shadow self, the need for connection, the significance of being present in our relationships. Jed shares his own journey to becoming a hands-on father and the importance of integrating success in the outer world with fulfillment and aliveness that begins within ourselves. It's time for ending the battles that are so prevalent in our lives and create the true partnership that we know we need, we want, and is available to us. It's part of our heritage. And we also explore the profound impact of loneliness, the transformative power of men's groups, and the beauty of being truly connected to ourselves and others. Now, just two quick items before we jump in. The first is that I'm going on summer sabbatical, at least for the rest of the summer. So there's going to be a little gap in episodes before you hear the next one rolling out. And then number two is that I want to talk to you also about getting aligned. You see, part of what gets us out of sorts is that we get out of alignment with what matters most in our lives. And so I've put together a workbook from exercises that I've been doing with my private clients for the past decade to support you with a process that brings life back into alignment. And you're going to get more on that and how to get it at the end of this show. And now let's jump back in and go on this walk with Jed Diamond, and let's go from male loneliness to full connection. One of the ways that I like to begin, I've, you know, I've got sort of a big topic that we'll somewhat narrow down to get into today. But before we dive in with that, I'd love to just ask you to share an experience from your background that has shaped a bit of who you are and what you're doing, what your work is in the world right now. I guess the thing that stands out for me at the moment is an event that still is resonant in my life. Happened on November 21st, 1969. And my wife and I were getting ready to have our first child. We're in the hospital and I was working with her with Lamaze childbirth coaching that we had gotten and helping her get through the uh, all the process getting ready for delivery. It was a fairly long uh, pre-birth. And as we were getting ready to the nurse saying, well, I think it's time, Mrs. Diamond, we're going to take you into the delivery room. 
And Mr. Diamond, it's time for you to go to the waiting room and uh, we'll let you know when the blessed event occurs, which mm. was kind of standard procedure back then. And mm. I knew the rules uh, and was a follower of the rules generally and started to go out to the waiting room, kissed my wife goodbye. She went one way, I went the other way. But as I was going out the door to the waiting room, I felt like I couldn't go through the door. It felt like there was almost a call, a presence saying, I don't want a waiting room father. Your place is here with us. And it was just a feeling, a sense that I got, but I acted on it. I turned around and and felt like maybe this was a call from my unborn child. And so I went back, uh, found the delivery room, walked through the doors and took my place at the head of the table, so to speak. And our son, uh, Jamal, was born not too long after that. And they handed him to me. And amid tears, my tears and my wife's, and I made a promise to him that I would be a different kind of father than my father was able to be for me. And to do everything I could to create a world where fathers were fully healthy and engaged with their families throughout their lives. And that was really the beginning of uh, what later became Men Alive, my window to the world and my way of organizing the work that I've been doing since then to fulfill that promise, both to my son. I had a little girl who we adopted three years later and my daughter, Angela. And so in a way, this work that I've been doing all these many years is to create that world and to help bring about the healing that needs to happen so that men are fully healed and engaged with their families and the communities of life are are alive and well as we uh, hopefully continue our work to make the world a better place for my case. And I have 15 uh, grandchildren and uh, two great-grandchildren and the (laughs) life continues. Oh, that's extraordinary. I want to go very much into that sense of being fully healed, especially as men. Before we get there, I'm just curious, though, as you have you know, this wonderful experience of becoming a father, your, your firstborn and which firstborn son, I'm curious, before you then recognize you're on this way to becoming a different kind of father, which leads to the work of Men Alive, What were you doing presently in your life before you started to traverse this new journey? Well, I was just a a step backward uh, in a way. Uh, I had the father that I hoped to be better than, to be a different kind of father than my father was able to be for me. My own father was a writer and an actor in New York and He came to California shortly after I was born. I was born in New York, came to California, and he ran right into that period in our history where people that were liberal or left-leaning people, progressive, uh, were seen back in a certain time in the 50s as perhaps red-leaning or communist potential. And that was the whole period in Hollywood where People were blacklisted as writers and and filmmakers, and my father was uh, one of those. He was a blacklisted writer, couldn't make a living. He uh, was literally blacklisted and couldn't work. And he became increasingly depressed because uh, he felt like, as a man, his job was to take care of his family and to provide, and he couldn't do that. 
became increasingly depressed and eventually took an overdose of sleeping pills and ended up in a mental hospital. And I grew up then wondering what happened to my father, uh, what had happened to me. And so my response was to become very independent. My mother had to work. I was an only child. I became kind of the super intellectual. I will not get emotional like my father. I will be successful. Eventually went off to medical school and I was going to be a doctor and become a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. and decided that wasn't for me. If you can believe it, medicine back then was even more restrictive than it is now. And so I left and uh, went into social work and became a therapist. And before all this happened with my first son, I was a very successful and high achiever, high income kind of guy, but very unhappy and very miserable at the same time, but feeling that was my role as a man. So that was the context in which then my life literally changed when our son was born. And all of a sudden being a father took on a very different meaning. And I didn't think at the time I would go on to make this my career. I just felt like- I need to take care of my son and be a good dad. All of that context, man, I can feel, you know, so much of my own journey as well as the journey of many men that I've I've had the honor of kind of walking with and guiding and coaching through the years as well. I first and foremost, I just, let me just kind of offer this up is resonate with that path of almost that fierce independence that takes over and I'm curious even in your own work how often you see that as a very very common you know occurrence among young men for me it was a it was a house fire that my family had when i was only five and a half years old and feeling the the sense of loss of home and immediately shutting down the emotions and becoming very fiercely self-reliant and kind of heading down on that path and i recognize many years later for all of the things maybe i'm i'm reading into this a bit but for all of the benefits that that gave me because to be that independent to be that self-reliant that's actually something that gets rewarded very much so by our society. And so I also had a tremendous amount of, of success and achievement only to arrive at places that even in the midst of purposeful work, as you found yourself in, very purposeful work. And yet it was like, this. I'm not sure if this is my life. I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not okay. satisfied. How often do you see that? Well, it's been, I think, a path that so many men have, have walked. And there, there are kind of two dichotomies in this. And I, my father, in a sense, experienced one part of the dichotomy, which is men who, who try to be successful but are not able to for various reasons. The economics of, of life have, have shifted. Uh, being able to work at, at jobs are, are not always easy, even for men that want to be successful. Mm-hmm. So there's you know, a whole group of men who have been striving but have not been successful. Then there's kind of the super strivers, in a sense, who say, like I did, I will never not be successful. I will do whatever it takes. And those two dichotomies really disconnect us from ourselves as total beings. I mean, to be a really good father was very clear to me early on I didn't want to be a successful absent father. And so there was that pull in me that I think is true for many men between trying to strive to be successful in the outer world and then neglecting sometimes our own inner world, you know, our own child within, our own inner self, as well as if we are 
actual parents or now grandparents in my case and great grandparent, our own real felt experience being with our children. Because our sons and our daughters are not saying, Dad, I wish you would be more successful and spend more time away and make more money. And, you know, they want your presence. They want your. And so my journey and, and in a sense, what I've been teaching, writing about is to help men and the women who love them, the families that are connected to find the way to be a full, complete, whole man which for me includes mm-hmm. being successful in the outer world and you know making a good living and doing something that we believe in, but also being able to be a hands-on dad and a hands-on husband and a hands-on mate and a hands-on person that is present yeah. to himself and other people. Yeah, that's interesting because I hear the expression of this dichotomy, not the not the way that you just you described the dichotomy around success a moment ago, but this feeling among men of how we wish to be very, very successful to kind of make our mark in the world with whatever our mission, work, vocation, calling happens to be. And at the same time, we want to be fully present to our relationships with our partners and with our children and with our friends and, you know, with our communities even as well. And it's interesting because I've heard from some men recently of how they struggle to figure out when they, it seems like when they put their focus in one area, the other area really starts to either wane or collapse on them. And they haven't figured out this way of balancing and integrating. I'm kind of curious a little bit about that of from your perspective of what is almost what is it in us that makes this feel like it's something separate, right? That makes it feel like we've got to place our focus in different areas and therefore we can't find that balance when in fact, the one place that we will find it is within ourselves and showing up in that capacity in all all areas we are. I think from my perspective, at least, I I have a, a fairly broad historical perspective, and it's from yeah. you know my own background, my own experience in both evolutionary biology and psychology that I you know have been trained in, which is you know recognizing the lineage that we have as males and females. My most recent book is called Twelve Rules for Good Men, and it came about because my wife, interestingly, had suggested this. I had written 15 books up till that point. And uh, I thought, well, you know, 15 is a good number to quit on. It's a lot of work writing books. It takes a lot of time and so on. And so I thought, well, this is a good body of work. I want to do more teaching and training and counseling for the next generation of people that want to work in this field of what I call gender medicine and men's health. But she said, you have at least one more book that you need to write, you know, with all this conflict between males and females and the left and the right and these, you know, the dichotomies that are so much a part of our modern life. She said, I think you really need to, to write a book about what's good about men and mm-hmm. what males need to be healthy, complete men, not only for themselves, but for women in the world and their families. And I thought, okay, <laughs> let me think about that. My first question I asked as I decided to write the book is if we're bringing together the essence of maleness and 
as an evolutionary uh, psychologist and biologist, my background's in biology, mm-hmm. I asked myself, how far back in evolutionary history are there males and females? Because I knew if you go back to single cell creatures, there was a point at which a single cell creature would divide in two and they would call them two sister cells because the genetics were the same and they were asexual. But there was a certain point in the evolutionary history where they were male and female cells, that there was the original sperm and egg coming together to create a new creature from a male cell and a female cell. I wonder how far back does that go? I mean, we know evolutionary, they're humans, they're male humans, female humans, male mammals, female. Well, how far back does it go? Well, it turns out it goes back a billion years. Mm. A billion years is our evolutionary male history and female history. So part of this big history is for most of human history, we have lived in societies, say for 2 million years, where there was more of a balance between males and females. There wasn't this dichotomy of males are better than or worse than, or we needed to dominate the earth. Mm -hmm. We, We were seen as living in balance with nature. And we know now maybe 6,000 years ago, which is a long time in in human history, but not so long in the whole scheme of evolutionary history, that we created this way of looking at the world that went from being a hunter-gatherer way of being in balance with nature to when we created big cities and started to domesticate animals. And what came into the world was what's called the dominator way of being. And my colleague, Rian Eisler, wrote a, a book called The Chalice and the Blade in 1987, where she talked about these two divergent systems, if you will, one she called domination and one partnership system that emerged mm-hmm. maybe 6,000 years ago or with what we call the advent of large civilizations. So there's a, a roundabout way of suggesting that part of this dichotomy of why these separations is the fact that we have been in a conflict between a dominator way of being and a partnership way of being that is really relatively new, Hmm. relatively, when I say 6,000 years is a long time, but in the scheme of both human history and evolutionary history, it's just a blink of an eye, one half of 1%. And that now... What's being called on for our survival, I think, as as a species, is that we need to let go of this attitude, this belief that it's humans' job to dominate the environment, to dominate the natural world. That doesn't work. We separate Mm -hmm. ourselves from the world. And what we do to the world when we try to dominate, we do to ourselves and each other. And I think it's the original, in a sense, separation, which leads to the disconnection that separates men from women, humans from the natural environment, and creates a kind of loneliness that is endemic, I think, to society. And part of what I think is being called on from all of us and what I've been about for these many years is to reconnect 
not only the last you know few years with this very radical separation, but our whole human history, which for most of it has been a pattern of deep partnership, which has now become separate and needs to be drawn back into a wholeness that I think we're all longing for. Number one, I deeply appreciate just, as you said, the deep, broad, historical perspective, evolutionary perspective that you put this in the frame of so that we understand that some of the things we're wrestling with are evolutionarily newer to us, even though it may seem like we've been dealing with it for a long time. And it's interesting to see the way in which these elements of consciousness around partnership, around connection, around balance are things that are are coming back around to be restored inside of society. And I'm curious, the way that you explained it, and I, I'm not sure if this was just the way that I heard it, or if I want to reframe this a bit, was that recognizing the way in which we separate from the world, meaning the way we separate from each other, the way that we separate from nature, is then it's kind of like, as we have done to others, we do unto ourselves. And what I'm also curious about, especially because of the depth of your background, especially on the psychology side of things as well, is I've also always seen that as we're doing to the world what we've already been doing to ourselves, right? Meaning that there is a sense of disconnection that we feel within ourselves and because we don't either know how to explore it, how to be with it, how to relate to it, we tend to then cover it up because it's a pain or a wound that we wish not to acknowledge. And in some way that whatever we want to call it, the unconscious, the shadow, whatever we want to call that, then begins to project itself outside of ourselves, right? And we need to direct that energy. We need to either use that blame, use that shame, use that guilt, whatever those, those energies, fears, whatever are. And we end up projecting it out because then that way we can feel like it's them, it's not us. I can keep myself protected or I can keep myself safe. If I do it that way, I'm curious just maybe to add to that perspective, because I, to me, that's, that's what I see is some of the greatest pain in the world right now is, is the pain that we strike upon others because of the pain that we're unwilling to look at within ourselves. Well, absolutely right. I mean, there's been lots of studies over the years and whole theories of psychology of that, that very edge of what we are unable to accept in ourselves we project out onto others. You know, some call it the shadow. Uh, some call it the scapegoat. There was in biblical history a, mm. an actual goat. <laughs> the idea was that you took all the sins of the society, all the bad stuff, and you would then put it into this other being, in this case, an actual goat, and then you would sacrifice the goat. And supposedly all of the negative stuff in society then would be cleansed or taken away. Well, we're still, you know, now metaphorically looking for scapegoats because it's painful to see the woundedness in ourselves. And I think the fear is, and certainly was my fear from my father and his history, is there must be something wrong with me, something inherently bad about me or something broken about me. And we have a whole, you know, psychiatric and psychological way of looking at the world that rather than seeing a broken system or a disconnection systemically, we look for who's sick and mm -hmm. who's crazy and 
you know, there's a whole industry then that either we will fix the ill people, which all of us become ill when we're in a sick environment or a dysfunctional right. environment. It's in a way a healthy response to a sick environment is to go, God, this is driving me nuts. So I think we really need a a new paradigm, a new way of understanding the problem, you know, what went wrong, where did the disconnection occur, what would healing look like, and how do we create the environments and the healing foundations for not only our integration of the parts of ourselves where we recognize there isn't anything wrong with me. This is the experience of what happens to you if you grew up in an environment that was traumatic or trauma-producing. And we now have all kinds of new research showing that it's these, quote, adverse childhood experiences. And we might call it also adverse social experiences that go way back that are part of the dysfunction that shows up in mental illness or mental problems, physical problems, emotional problems. And that as we heal ourselves, we can begin to heal the communities and vice versa as we heal our environments, as we really address global warming and all of the disconnections that we have that the earth itself is saying, you all are out of balance with the larger community of life and the fact that it's hot where I am today and in many other parts of the world. And if it isn't hot, it's too rainy or there's too much climate dysfunction. All of these things, I think, relate to both, as you point out, what goes on inside also is reflected outside and vice versa. It's at times easy to blame the system, to blame the world, to blame conditions for why we are how we are, for why we're experiencing life in a certain way. How often have I been asked as well as I have asked myself, how can we change the system? How can we change these prevailing attitudes, such as the stigma of talking about mental health and even sexuality? Or how is it that we can change the culture and openly address and discuss in a more conscious and mature way race? prejudice of all kinds, inequality, and much more. I've asked these big questions. And more often than not, when I have been looking outside of myself, when I've been looking out at the systems, more often than not, when I have asked these big questions, it's because what I was really asking was, how can I get the bigger narratives to agree more with my inner one? Ouch. Yeah, more often than not, I wanted my view, my values, my perspectives to be the one that were prevailing. Why am I going here? Because change in the world first begins with change within ourselves, within our hearts, our minds, and within our shadows, within our consciousness, as well as our unconscious too. If we aren't happy with what we're seeing out there, we need to find out what it is that's within ourselves that we need to address. So let me give an example. See, I used to have a big challenge with people who seemed to be selfish, boisterous, a bit rigid in their views, and really would stick to, this is what I want. This is what I need. This is my view. I'd view them as egotistical, self-centered, uncaring for others, even narrow-minded. And by view them this way, 
I mean, I judge them. <laughs> so what was really going on? In fact, whether they were or were not any of these things was irrelevant. I needed to consider why was this triggering to me? I needed to consider how individuals that I perceived in this way were triggering my triggers. Key point there, the triggers were mine. They were just bringing them to light. What I found was that part of me envied their boldness, envied their ability to speak up for themselves, their views, their determination, even their resoluteness. Part of my old game was to please others, to be overly amiable and to keep the peace. And typically at the cost of my own needs and perspectives, among many other things. The behavior I felt I witnessed was upsetting to me more because it was something that I felt that I lacked. It was something that was going on inside of me more so than anything else that the other person was even doing. Previously, encountering a situation like this would bring up stress, judgment, possibly even arguments, trying to speak over each other or prove what was really needed and who was right. All the while, no listening, no real understanding, no compassion or new expanded perspectives could be found anywhere in these situations. I needed to heal this within myself so that now I can hold space for individuals who may be coming across this way. I can be patient. I can be compassionate. And then when I engage to ask questions, to pose different perspectives, to pose my own, I can do so without being all charged up, without coming from a place of needing to be right, or at least needing to show them that they're wrong, without competing with them, without judgment, without the type of energy that just plain gets in the way of connecting or producing a much more real conversation. It's one that neither person, when they walk away, can just blow off because they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel understood, even if we're not in agreement. If we want to have more powerful, conscious conversations that have a hope of changing the state of affairs, we need to begin that within ourselves and put it into practice within our lives, within our relationships. In turn, we'll start to get more conscious about what our real needs are and about which shadow needs and even unhealthy ways of fulfilling our needs have actually been getting in the way. Once we're more conscious of those needs, We'll start wanting different things and engaging in more powerful ways. Our choices and our actions will then align to this new way of being. And that is what changes systems. You need to change the input. And we are both the input as well as the perpetuators of the system. Change ourselves inside and out. And the system will change. All right. <laughs> Let me get off my soapbox. I think you've got the point. And let's get back to our chat with Jed because we've still got more to get into. Let's go. I want to see how much ground we can cover here in the, in the next 20 minutes or so together because you opened up kind of two different paths. And I'm going to start in one direction, which I'll get to in a second, because I want to come back around to that new paradigm. And because I know there's stuff that you're working on that, that does fit in that direction. So we're going to come back to that. To get to that new paradigm, if you could share a little bit of where does a man kind of begin? Let me kind of set a little bit of this, this stage because we actually only loosely mentioned it, but it was one of the original reasons why I wanted to connect with you is 
there is this topic of loneliness and specifically male loneliness is beginning to become recognized a lot more. There's more studies, there's more research, the you know deleterious effects of male loneliness and the different ways that it's showing up, whether it be violence or suicide or health outcomes or any number of other things are becoming more and more documented. I know even part of the new paradigm or the, the new project work that you're heading down, what is it? The, the greatest predictor of an early death is being male, I believe was the way that uh, the research had come out and we'll get to that. But this loneliness effect that is there is beginning to be a piece, what I would actually like to offer to a lot of men out there is for it to be a point of recognition. Meaning that when you're feeling that, that loneliness, that number one, you're not alone is the irony, I guess you could say of that, is it's something that's felt by a lot of other men. I know of times that I have been in a room full of friends, people who know me well, people who I've been through a lot of stuff with and felt like the loneliest man on the planet. And I've gone through periods like that. And because it was a disconnection that I felt inside myself and a disconnection to something greater than myself that I also felt like I was missing. And so if that's a point of awareness, when a man finds himself feeling that loneliness set in, feeling that dissatisfaction, that, that lack of fulfillment beginning to set in where they feel maybe a little more numb, less excited, less alive in their lives, where would you advise them to begin the journey? How do they get on a path that potentially reconnects them to that aliveness and showing them another way is still possible, more than possible for themselves? The first step is recognizing the issue, the problem. If you recognize that loneliness is underlying a whole lot of the problems that we see in society, and if you understand what loneliness really is, the way I describe it is we all know what hunger is. If you haven't eaten for a day or two, most of us haven't experienced that kind of yeah, hunger. Real hunger. Yeah. Most of us have it if we, you know, it's getting close to lunchtime and you start feeling <laughs> hungry or thirsty. You haven't, you know, it's a hot day and you've forgotten to bring your water bottle with you or whatever, and you're really thirsty. Well, we recognize that hunger is a indicator that's telling us there's something that we need that's vital. So it draws us out to start looking for food. Same thing with thirst. If we are thirsty and we haven't had liquids, we're going to go looking for that. Well, loneliness is an indicator of a basic need that is not being met for connection. Now, if you look at how all beings, humans, just to go back our evolutionary time, we are embedded in a social network where we are embedded in a family. If we're healthy for most of human history, we grew up with a mother and a father that nurtured us, held us physically, emotionally, who are surrounded themselves by other relatives of aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and cousins within a community of people who, you know, live together, interacted together. And now much of that has gotten broken. And we are not connected to families. Many of us grew up without dads at home, like I did. Many of us are, have broken families. Many of us have lost the connection to friends. Our, we move a lot. We don't stay in the same communities 
where we were born. We don't know our neighbors. All of these things are telling us that there's something missing. So I mentioned my book, 12 Rules for Good Men. The first rule, if you will, or the guidance is I tell people, join a men's group if you're a man. And I'd say that for two reasons. One is I've been in a men's group that's been meeting regularly for 43 years now. And it came at a time when I recognized I needed connections to men, just in the way my my wife at the time needed connections to women and the whole women's movement when that was happening. Women recognized their need to connect with women. Men didn't do that so much. We were independent. We could take care of ourselves well. The truth is, just like hunger and thirst, not being connected is asking us to pay attention to a need that isn't being met. And so humans and men in particular have always been embedded in a community of males. You know, for most of human histories, males went out hunting. That's how we got you know, the food that that we survived on or, you know, gathered food together. And so we need to feel connected to men once that we have lost, but are now deeply looking for. So my men's group, as I say, has been meeting for 43 years. My wife will tell you, quite honestly, that one of the reasons she thinks we have a really successful 42-year marriage, is that I've been in a men's group that's been meeting for 43 years, and we (laughs) will hopefully be meeting the rest of our lives. So there's many ways that men can be in men's groups. It isn't necessarily a formal men's group where you meet every week and talk, uh, although that's great. There's a lot of ways to do that. But that hunger for being with other men in some other way than Sports, which is another way mm-hmm. we've connected, or military and battles and service. But we need to recognize the hunger for other men at the core that allows us then to have better relationships with women, better relationships with our children, better relationships with our communities if we get that connection with other guys. What is it that happens when? You know, whether it be in a in a formal group or informal men's group or circle, something along those lines, what is it that if you're participating in something like that, what is it that helps you begin to connect to yourself or grow or expand for yourself in that environment that has not been as available to us in other environments? Like what's taking place that allows some of that alchemy to to begin to occur? Well, I think part of it, and if you, you don't know it till you actually experience it, which is the feeling that you have when you're in the company of other men. The poet Robert Bly, who's a good friend of mine, has been over the years, and he, in his poetic way, had said that what is lacking in our relationships, he's talked about it particularly in our having older men be there with sons. And he said that we need as males to hear the sound that male cells sing. Mm. And I thought it was such a visceral, Mm. profound way, the sound that male cells sing. And 
I think what that says to me is that one, that there is a vibration, a sound that male Mm -hmm. cells have. There are 10 trillion cells in the human body. This is from my biology background, 10 trillion cells in the human body. And every one is sex specific. Every cell is male and has an XY chromosome if you're a male. And if you're a female, you have an XX chromosome. And every cell has a vibration that makes it all male if you're male, all female if you're female. And we need to be in the company of those vibrations. Not exclusively. We, you know, we need to be with men to be with women and vice versa and so on. But part of getting to know ourselves on a cellular level is experienced, I can tell you, from 43 years in a men's group with very close male friends who are like even deeper than brothers, is you can't really get to know yourself of who you are because we don't exist as separate beings. The nature of being is that we are in relationship. Somebody said the smallest unit of being is two, that there are no such thing as one. And which yeah. is, when you think about it, it's true. We, yeah. we were conceived in a two. There was a male cell and a female cell that came together. And we all have within us what we got from our male ancestors a billion years ago and our female ancestors in all of us. So Mm. in some way, that's the essence of what you get. And then Mm. there's a whole lot more that's built on top of that. The empathy, the things that only guys know in our bodies of what it means to be male, the problems we have with our wives, our children, all the things that you get to talk about if you're in a group where you feel safe, you feel cared for, you feel held, and you feel like inherently I'm okay. With all my hangups, with all my challenges, who I am is good. Yeah, It's amazing how much we begin to flourish as well as how much we are willing to step into our own growth, into our own fears, what it is that we're willing to face when we can be in an environment where we feel accepted. There is so much that changes when we can feel that again and to feel that acceptance from other males within our lives. I love that poetic way of what it is that begins to sing when we are together again is a a beautiful way to, to express that, really beautiful way to express that. I wanted to come back because I, I did not want to leave out our time to talk about new paradigm stuff because you kind of dropped that in of, you know, there's this kind of new paradigm that we can be ushering in at this point and to do so to understand, well, what is it that went wrong? Where is it that we can place our attention now? What are the new systems that we can be creating? I know that part of this certainly is connected to this project that you have literally underway and unfolding. It's actually coming out live as this episode releases called The Moonshot for Mankind and Humanity. But I was wondering if you could share around this idea of the new paradigm and you know, how much is it that this is a new paradigm that you can see and how much of this is a new paradigm that you can see will be created through the questions that are kind of posing the quest for us to go on? Yeah, well, for me, again, uh, this started with my own journey 
with both the birth of my first son and in some way the journey that started when my father had the breakdown and I wanted to understand what what happened to him, what had happened to me, why did it happen to him and different from what happened to my mother. So this quest, I think we all have to answer some questions of who am I, where do I fit in, what's important in my life, what am I here to do? And in my own work with Men Alive that started back then, uh, about 20 years ago, I read a research study by two colleagues that were looking at longevity and lifespan in different cultures throughout the world. And what they found was that in every country they studied, that as a group, men died younger and lived sicker, had diseases at higher levels than females as a group. And it seemed to be true pretty much everywhere that they studied. And we see it in our country, in the United States, and in other countries as well. Their conclusions, though, and their recommendations for me at the time, almost 20 years ago, was a call to action. They said that the number one factor if you had to look at risk factors for early death and disease and all the things you might think might be implicated, they said the number one risk factor was simply being male. If you knew nothing else about a person, you could predict a lot about how early they might die or how well they might live just on that factor alone. Hmm. And they concluded that if you could simply help men live as long as women as a group, and be as healthy. I mean, we already know now, which I didn't know back when I was going to school, the things that can help us live long, healthy, and positive lives. And the researchers said you would save 375,000 men's lives every year in the United States alone. Mm. So think about 375,000 men's lives, men you know, fathers, brothers, sons, grandchildren, friends, neighbors, 375,000 men's lives every year in the United States alone. And you multiply that times every other country in the world. So I oriented Men Alive, my website, and the work that I was doing to take into account what I was learning and what others were learning about how we can do that. And about two years ago, I felt that time was running out. We knew enough now. There were enough organizations, individuals in, in the world that I've had some contact with to, if we could come together, if we could pool our resources, if we could know what each other is doing, if we could develop you know, the best practices, we could really make a dent in this moonshot. The way I called it a moonshot was, you know, Google has a part of their research labs that, that's called Google X. And the idea of what they study in Google X is looking for problems that are major, that if could be solved, could make a huge difference. And the X is they would hope to make an improvement of multiple times, not a percentage. So 10 times better, not just 10% better. And I thought, well, 
helping men live long and well would be one of those big things. The researchers that I mentioned said, if we could do that, you would do more good in the world than curing cancer. So about a year and a half ago, I invited a number of colleagues to come together to work with me to develop this moonshot for mankind. We, as you mentioned, are are launching now after a year and a half, our window to the world. uh, It's called moonshotformankind.com. We'll be available for people to connect. We're kicking off uh, with a series of online workshops over a period of four days, uh, July 25th to the 28th. And we'll be doing other things throughout the year and in coming years, really to do just two basic things. First thing is to recognize that if we can heal men, if we can be healthier, and there's lots of ways we can do that individually, we can not only help individual guys live healthier, longer lives, but their families. Because for every guy that dies too soon, there's left a a son, a daughter, a a wife, a a husband, a, a partner, a friend. And the second thing we want to do is to pool our resources. We want to draw together the what we are guessing is a thousand organizations throughout the world that are doing significant work who probably don't know the other organizations or may not be aware of, of all of them, and to draw together individuals, men and women, who say, you know what? I want to be part of this. I want to focus on the health of men, whether for myself as a man or for a man in my life, a partner, a husband, a wife, whoever you feel, you know, is touched by an issue with men that we know, whether it's a mental health issue, a physical health issue, a relational health issue, that we could do better. So that's our call. Our call to action is to invite you and your listeners and your people that follow and many, many others to join us in what we think is a quest that can really, truly make a difference in the world. Uh, And it's what I've dedicated my life to. And as I uh, reach my 80th year, which I will be in this year, this Mm. is what I hope to, you know, kind of sign off on, not because the work will be finished, but because it will be in process that hopefully my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and your children and... yeah great-grandchildren and the rest can carry on so that we can feel proud of being males. We can feel good about what it means to be a man. We can feel good about partnership with women and to let go of this idea that, you know, we're in a, a battle of the sexes. Well, we're not. It's time for ending the battles that are so prevalent in our lives and create the true partnership that we know we need, we want, and is available to us. It's part of our heritage. We've just lost Mm. connection with it, and it's time to rebalance and reclaim the heritage that is ours. Jed, thank you for that. And, you know, for everybody listening, and and Jed, add to this, but I I think some of the avenues that I already saw that you guys are beginning to explore in the summit, which I'm sure will lead to the further resources and conversations, had to do with looking at men's mental health, men's relational health, and then health within community as well, were three, I know, at least major avenues that were there. I'm sure there's more to it, but it sounded like those were three of kind of the launching channels, so to speak, of what you're pursuing, correct? Exactly. And then we have uh, six other founding members, each doing work they've been doing over many, many years. 
to share, you know, in a sense, best practices, what we've learned mm. to find out what other people are doing so that we can share those with the world and together we can make a difference. Excellent. So I would encourage everybody to check out, that was moonshotformankind.com, right? Yeah, it's not, that it's right? not available as we're, you and I are speaking right now, but we'll be available by the end of the month. Exactly. So it's coming soon. Go ahead, check the show notes because we will keep the link there. You'll know, you know that it's going to be active. Certainly, you can check out metalive.com to be able to follow Jed's work. You'll see the announcement certainly of, of the moonshot coming out through Jed's website and emails and all those types of things. Jed, I just want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for the conversation. I have a sneaking suspicion that this may not be the only conversation that we have here for, for listeners to tune into. And I'm deeply intrigued by where the moonshot and that conversation can lead us because it's something that even I had chatted about offline. So I'll you know, share it with everybody. It's one of the things I have also felt for a long time is that there are so many wonderful organizations doing great work in the world, but all too often we're doing them in a silo. And we don't get that chance to bring the best practices, to bring the collective conversations together, to bring the communities all together into one community, to be able to share from that standpoint, to be able to move us forward. And this is a very, very important topic when we're talking about men's health. It's not, it's not only the physical stuff. This is the emotional stuff, the mental, the relational, the communal. This is a very, very broad, dynamic conversation that we need to be having. And it is for the good of all. It is truly the good for mankind. I want to thank you for doing it. I want to thank you for putting that conversation front and center for us to participate in as well. And I look forward to having you back on the show sometime soon. Well, I, I'd Thanks love to do it. You're, you're doing the, the work that needs to be done. And there's all unique ways we can all do our own thing and also be part of a larger community of doing things together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jed, thank you so much. So once again, I want to encourage you to check out Jet Diamond, his work, as well as the Moonshot for Mankind project, which is now underway. Their first broadcast with Humanity Rising actually just aired this past week. And so to follow the Moonshot, just go to moonshotformankind.com. You can track all the companies that are already involved, as well as find out how to be involved yourself. Also, if you want to see what's already been broadcast, go to humanityrising.solutions and either register for free or navigate to the past episodes. Now, last, I told you that at the top of the show, I had a tool for you to download to support you with getting into deeper and greater alignment. So if you want to get more deeply aligned so that you can tap into more fulfillment and aliveness, then download the alignment workbook previously that was only available to my private clients. But now you can do so to be and live more as the man, husband, father, or leader that you aspire to be. In just the next few months, when you implement your insights, it creates that type of change. All you've got to do is go to onthiswalk.com forward slash alignment. That was onthiswalk.com forward slash alignment. You'll also find the link in the show notes to be able to download that. Once again, I want to thank you for tuning in to On This Walk. 